Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. This program is a paid commercial announcement and in no way represents the views of WPHT or its management. This is Women to Watch. To rise above all of the noise and fulfill every last one of your dreams. Women to Watch, sharing the real stories of the most accomplished women in the world. It is for those frightened children who want peace. It is for those voiceless children who want change. Be inspired by women from across the globe who are encouraging more women to pursue their dreams. True philanthropy comes from living from the heart of yourself and giving what you have been given. Now, Women to Watch. Here's your host, Sue Rocco. Good evening, everyone, and thank you so much for joining us for another week of Women to Watch here on Talk Radio 1210 WPHT. My name is Sue Rocco, and I'm I'm very excited for our show this evening. It's going to be a good one. Uh, Tonight, I will be speaking with Dr. Marcella Adamski, and she is a clinical psychologist and the executive director of the Oral History Project. Uh, She's calling us from California, and she'll be with me in just a moment. Her life and career has truly been amazing, and um, we're going to hear from her in in a minute. Be sure to stay with us always during our breaks to catch our watch team of contributors who will be bringing you valuable information on health, leadership, finance, technology, diversity, and this week, education, with the launch of President Colleen Hanich's first segment from LaSalle University. I was with her um, earlier in the day, and we recorded her education segment. I think you're really going to enjoy it. Uh, We're also hearing from more and more members of our listening audience who are sharing their own inspirational stories from listening to the show, and I'm so grateful for that. So please be sure to reach out to me anytime at susan at womentowatch.net. That's women, the number two, watch.net, N-E-T, or by visiting our website at womentowatch.net. So without any further ado, I'd love to welcome to the show Dr. Marcella Adamski. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you, Sue. It's a pleasure to join you. It's wonderful to have you um, share your story with our listeners today. And and I would say in doing my homework and kind of um, 
looking around at your work, I think that what you've been doing, your career, um, is not as well known as it should be. So uh, I'm very honored to share the work that you've been doing over these many years. And of course, you were born and raised in Philadelphia, which I love. So you yes. were born in, in my hometown here. And um, I love how you described those growing up years as, as loving uh, your school friends and hoagies and dances at St. Matthew's uh, on right. Friday and Saturday nights and going on bandstand. Yes. Is that how many times were you on bandstand? I don't think more than once. It okay. was hard to get in, but we loved watching it. Yes, I bet. I mean, that's a that's a Philadelphia. Well, it was a tradition. So um, tell me a little bit about those younger years. Uh, Marcella in Philadelphia, and a little bit about your upbringing and how that kind of shaped your aspirations to really become a humanitarian. Well, uh, I think it probably begins because I was the oldest sister in a family, and that often um, enables one to learn how to care for others because it just comes very naturally as part of the you know, the living situation in a family. Um, uh, I had an older brother and uh, a younger brother, a little bit younger than I, but unfortunately he was brain damaged in the delivery process. So he was mentally retarded his whole life, probably didn't reach an IQ higher than maybe a one year of age. And by growing up with him, um, all of us, the myself and the three siblings beneath me, we really learned how to care for him and care for his needs, and that, I think, um, made me comfortable taking care of people who maybe had difficulty speaking, or maybe I couldn't understand because they had a, a different language background than my own. Mm-hmm. And I also, you know, we were a family who worked very hard. My father was, um, uh, uh, he worked on the Pennsylvania Railroad, and he was a mechanic and had very, very difficult job, but he loved it. And my mom was a housewife taking care of five children and one of them, you know, a special needs youngster. Wow. So um, it was, we were kind of a, kind of, I'd say an average uh, middle income family. Mm -hmm. Uh, But like most people in Philly, Holmesburg, Mayfair, where I grew up, you know, we were of moderate means and did the best we could to have good times. And so part of growing up that was a lot of fun was we had great classmates in all through grade school. We had a wonderful group of, of nuns that taught us at St. Dominic's. And uh, and then we continued to stay in touch with each other as we entered high school. The guys went to Father Judge frequently, mm-hmm. and the girls went to St. Hubert's. But we stayed in touch for some reason. It was almost like an extended family. And even even as of a week ago, I think I had an invitation to have uh, have dinner with my eighth grade classmates oh, at Constatter's wow. in, Pens- in Philly on um, what what avenue is that in Philadelphia? And it was uh, it was really wonderful. In fact, I saw them a few years ago, and we certainly got together for our fiftieth reunion. So I guess I'm saying that. I, I was very fortunate to have a neighborhood, a community, and a family system that really encouraged a warmth and caring interactions with each other. So tell me what other activities you were involved in in high school at St. Hubert's. Well, I think my I was on the school newspaper. Mm-hmm. I certainly tried to be on the basketball team as much as I could. Uh, 
but most of the other things were just on on weekends you know as we were we would have housework and chores to do and we would go to the movies we'd go roller skating we'd go to the ice rink i mean those were the kinds of activities that were uh, possible to us in the summer we loved swimming in pennypack creek mm-hmm. and and doing um, you know, doing hikes and things like that. We, it was fun to go. Certainly, I enjoyed going to the Philadelphia Museum of Art. And you know, Rocky, the film Rocky came out kind of in my high school days. Yes. So it was wonderful to have, uh, you know, a chance to visit that historic site in from Filmland and from Rocky's background. So um, I, I think those were the major activities that I did as a, and except you know, a lot of homework. Right, right. Well, good, clean fun because there was no internet or technology. No, there was right? no So you were internet. outside playing. Which reminds me, that's exactly right. Every every conversation was a personal one by telephone, mm. and we drove yes. our parents crazy, all of us, because we were on the phone all the time. Right, and, and there were five of, course, of you, and there were no <laughs> cell phones, so that's you right. really were on the family phone. You know, one phone, you had, you're fighting over it. Yeah, you had to wait your turn, and. Uh, that was true. I feel I feel kind of sad for the kids today. They're they're very good at texting and emailing, but they don't always have uh, an ease in just in normal, regular, small talk conversation. Mm-hmm. It's harder to yes, do. Yes, it person. is absolutely. Yeah. So in in 1961, you were just a year out of high school. You entered the Mary Knoll Sisters organization, who did social work all over the world. Right. I'd love for you to tell me a little bit about your time in South Korea. All right. Um, well, the Marital Sisters did uh, a lot of things besides social work. They also were nurses and doctors. They worked in community development. They started credit unions um, in South Korea because I had just graduated from New York University uh, and had my degree in radio, television, and film production. I was invited to be on something called the Mass Communications Committee. Uh, which was a group of um, Fulbright scholars and some um, church um, members of different churches and organizations. And what we were doing was trying to put on radio programs that would promote health um, in some of the areas, more remote areas in Korea. Um, And the Koreans are great lovers of soap operas. And uh, so we decided to write radio programs that would talk about how it would be important to um, you know, you know, follow certain hygienic principles, especially when coming out of the fields and all that, so that you didn't get sick. Like we would have a story about a young woman about to get married, and and um, and she did become ill. And they were talking about on the show what could have been done to prevent that. And they made it very dramatic and a lot of fun. Mm. So, Marcella, did... can you hold that one thought and finish that story when sure. we come back? We have to take a quick break. And I'd love for you to continue that story when we come back. Stay with us for our Leadership and Health Watch. Women to Watch. Leadership Watch. Hi, everyone. Holly Dowling here with your Leadership Watch for the week. And you know, the time of year, it's really critical for many of us, especially those of us leading organizations and in any type of leadership position. So I really hope you'll listen closely to this because I'm passionate about this topic. We are all right now facing... No matter how big or small your company is, it's the end of year performance reviews. And I know just as I say that, some of you cringe. 
Some of us cringe. Some of us wish we never even had to do them. And unfortunately, most of us don't have in place really effective, proactive, and constructive ways of doing performance evaluations. And by the way, why do we all wait till the end of the year? So I'm going to flip it on its head. And I'm going to challenge all of you to think about a few things that you could implement right now, today or tomorrow, starting in your organization with this month of end of year performance reviews. And, and here's why, because we typically have maybe 30 minutes of which we spend the first three minutes focusing on and thanking people for why we hired them and what we like about them. And then the next 27 minutes is spent on the areas of opportunity. And yes, I'm quoting my fingers as I say that. We refer to areas of opportunity as 27 minutes or more of all the things we need to fix or change or the areas that we think are faulty. And I'm going to challenge you as a leader. You know what the true definition of areas of opportunity are in your organization? They're the strengths of your people. They're the strengths of the people on your teams that you're leading. And you know, three questions you could start asking tomorrow. Sit down, throw out the old performance evaluations and ask three questions and give this to your team leaders. First question, as simple as this, tell me about a recent success. Tell me what you're proud of at work. Second question, what drove that success? Tell me what you love about it and what strength drove it. And third question, what are you looking forward to to start off this year, two things you're looking forward to. That's all I'm going to leave you with. It's power and it's magic. Please reach out to me, hollydowling.com. Since 1858, Mount St. Joseph Academy has been educating girls to be leaders, founders, and independent thinkers. Students are taught to be collaborative, courageous, compassionate, confident, and spiritual. In this student-centered environment, the young women are transformed by recognizing their own potential and are encouraged to use it to make a difference in the world. To learn more about Mount St. Joseph Academy, go to www.msjacad.org or call 215-233-3177. That's msjacad.org or 215-233-3177. For Health Watch, I'm Dr. Marianne Ritchie. The holidays, a special time to celebrate with family and friends, especially when we learn someone's expecting a baby. Congratulations to my niece Katie, her husband Ryan, who had beautiful little Matthew Joseph a week ago, and to our daughter and her husband Tom expecting a baby in March. Here are some tips to prepare for a healthy pregnancy. First, see your doctor for a pre-pregnancy checkup. And before you get pregnant, check your medicines, prescription, over-the-counter, even herbal drugs. You may need to change or stop some of them, and it can take a long time for some to leave your body completely. Some may even harm the baby, like seizure meds, blood pressure, lupus, arthritis. Make sure your vaccines are up to date. Mumps, measles, rubella, especially Tdap that covers pertussis, and the flu vaccine. Insist that anyone in your home and those helping to care for the baby have the flu shot and the Tdap shot. Start at least a month ahead with a multivite containing folate. That's a natural vitamin. At the drugstore, it's called folic acid. It can prevent birth defects. Avoid raw and undercooked meat. Avoid certain fish like shark and swordfish with high levels of mercury. Limit caffeine to one to two servings a day. That's coffee, tea, or cola. Wash your fruits and vegetables. Please stop smoking, drinking alcohol, or taking drugs. Even small amounts can hurt the baby. Any medical conditions, get them controlled before pregnancy, especially diabetes, blood pressure problems, asthma, thyroid disease, seizures, or HIV. Look for chemicals or substances in the home or workplace that could hurt the baby. 
Before 1978, many houses had lead paint. Start with a healthy weight. Weighing too much or too little can make it hard to conceive and cause problems later. So divas, be careful when you're pregnant. Give that little angel every chance for a happy, healthy life. And happy Hanukkah to our friends celebrating this week. This is Women to Watch with Sue Rocco. Talk Radio 1210 WPHD. I'm talking with Marcella Adamski, uh, this evening a clinical psychologist and the executive director of the Oral History Project. And just before the break, um, I had asked you about your decision to enter the Mary Knoll Sisters organization, and you were sharing a great story about the work you were doing just prior to that decision. Well, uh, the story was when I actually went to Korea and uh, I was invited to be on a mass communication committee in Seoul, Korea, and I was a Marianal sister at okay. the time. Okay. And, yes, and we were designing radio programs that would enable um, enable people to get more information about uh, how to uh, take care, better care of their health. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, many of the people that we were working with, they were they were survivors uh, of the Korean War. In fact, the, the mother, I lived in a house with another sister, another Marinelle sister, and there was a woman who ran that house. It was sort of like a boarding house, and uh, she had survived the war and swum across the Han River with two children on her back oh during gosh. the war. Wow. So there was a lot of uh, needs in, in Korea for people to uh, redevelop their school systems, their hospitals, and to deal uh, you know, with survivors of war trauma mm-hmm. as well as war injuries. Yeah. You know, Marcel, I have to tell you, in, in preparing for this interview, I found it extremely difficult just to read about some of the unspeakable torture that people um, experience that you came to know and to see. And just so the listeners understand, um, the work that you've done is with people who truly have been through trauma. And two things came to mind for me in in reading that information was was even though they had been through such horrific experiences, they had this deep desire to, to live. Yes. And I wanted to ask you about that and also, of course, your ability to um, be able to help people who had been through such trauma and not yourself take that on emotionally. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So where do you think that, that desire in these people to continue to live in the worst of circumstances comes from? I think it really depends on the people. Um, for a while, I ran a treatment center for survivors of torture from around the world, and they had been mothers, fathers, teachers, scholars, doctors who were arrested by the country they were living in. Uh, that was very uh, dictatorial and oppressive, and they were tortured. And some of them, you know, barely got out alive, and their desire to live was because they wanted to pursue democracy in their country. And uh, and be back with their families and let the world know uh, that they were truly not supporting uh, regimes like that. Mm. Um, the other the other the other group of people that I worked with that were incredible were warring. When I got out, when I left Marino, I came back to Philadelphia, and I worked with war injured Vietnamese children, mm-hmm. and these youngsters had been had been killed by, um, not killed, their parents and families had been killed. 
you know, by all the war going on in Vietnam. And the children that we brought over to get treatment in in Philadelphia hospitals had been napalmed or they had lost their arms or legs. Mm. Well, they, you know, they wanted to live because they wanted to go back and be reunited with their families. Um, they found the courage, I think, because um, they were they were human beings, and to live must have felt a lot better to them than just to succumb if they could possibly get loving, tender human care. And um, that seems to really be an important factor in how people can survive, is that if they get compassionate care from others, mm. um, and that makes them feel valued. Um, for instance, the hardest part that torture victims told me about was they couldn't believe that other human beings would want to hurt them like they were hurt. And so they were, in a sense, restored their sense of well-being when people actually reached out to care for them. Um, another group that I'm working with uh, and have been working with like that are uh, the people of Tibet who um, Tibet was invaded in 1959 completely invaded by the Chinese, and 80,000 Tibetans had to flee. And so I got, uh, thanks to a wonderful invitation from His Holiness the Dalai Lama, an opportunity to interview um, 304 of these people. And I was really interested in how how their spirits, why were their spirits so alive and so um, full of joy and energy after all that they had been through? Yes, I mean, they lost yes. their towns, their villages. Many of their family members were tortured, killed, put in concentration camps, and yet there was this aliveness in them and, and, and wonderful uh, spirit. And it was really, it really had to do with, I think, their own belief that um, in in that all human beings need compassion. Even the people that abuse them maybe did it out of ignorance or out of fear, you know, of their own government. Um, and that these people said, you know, I'm not going to carry hatred or anger in my heart because it will it'll ruin my life. I'm I'm just going to let go and forgive them and move on with my life. Mm. It's it's, it's remarkable to me. It speaks to, um, you know, the statement that those who are the most um, troubled or who have face the greatest challenges, become the most compassionate people right. among us. Um, listen, we're going to go into another break. And when we come back, I want to talk more about you and what experiences you have had in your life that have prepared you to work with these kind of people. We'll be right back. Stay with us for our Finance and Tech Watch. You're listening to Women to Watch. The Women to Watch Finance Watch. Hi, this is Terry, And this is Maggie. And we're your Finance Watch team. It's not too early to start planning for your 2018 income tax return. While most taxpayers will benefit from reduced tax rates due to the new tax law that went into effect in 2017, these changes also mean it's less likely that you will itemize your deductions and use the new higher standard deduction instead, which means you may want to rethink your strategy for minimizing your tax bill. Many deductions that were available in the past are more limited or gone completely. If you have taxes withheld through your employer, please note that the new withholding tables weren't put into effect until March 2018. Check the calculator on the IRS website to get an idea of how much should be withheld from your pay. Taxpayers who are self-employed, retired, or receive most of their income from investments should also revise their estimated tax payments to avoid underpayment penalties. 
One of the most complex aspects of the new tax act is the 20% pass-through deduction for businesses. There are many rules that apply, so if you think you are eligible, make sure that you work with a qualified tax professional who can help you navigate these rules and make sure you can take full advantage of the deduction. For those who are itemizing and are over age 70 and a half, if you own an IRA and are thinking about making a gift to charity, consider using a qualified charitable distribution. This allows you to transfer up to $100,000 per year from your IRA directly to a qualified charity and reduce the taxable amount of your distribution. If you plan to make donations to charity from other assets, consider appreciated stock or mutual funds rather than cash. Giving these assets directly to charity can minimize the impact of capital gains taxes. So, check your withholding, review the availability of deductions you were used to in the past, and get organized early. April 15th will be here before you know it. Please note that this is general information and should not be construed as tax advice. Always consult with your tax advisor regarding your individual situation. This is Terry. And this is Maggie. Peace out. Do you have a financial advisor who you trust that looks at you as more than just a number? At the Foley Hillsley Group, that person is Kristen Hillsley. Kristen's team has a different approach to managing your wealth called the Panorama Process. This unique process helps you obtain your financial goals easily because it's more than just investments, it's about you. To learn more, visit their website at fhbaird.com or call 610-238-6636. The Foley Hilsey Group is affiliated with Robert W. Baird & Company, Incorporated Member SIPC. Log on to fhbaird.com to learn more. That's fhbaird.com. So if you need a financial advisor you can trust, call Kristen Hillsley at 610-238-6636. That's 610-238-6636. Introducing Pathways Consulting Group, a company that will align your IT needs with your business goals. Pathways is a full-service ServiceNow partner. What does that mean? It's simple. Pathways will collaborate and design, develop, and deploy solutions for your company today that will define tomorrow. Pathways will provide world-class enterprise service management solutions. Pathways Consulting Group. They listen. They care. They execute. Go to PathwaysCG.com. That's PathwaysCG.com. Now, the women to watch. Tech Watch. Hi, I'm Mary Manso of Pathways Consulting Group. With so much future opportunity in the technology industry, getting girls interested at an early age without forcing it on them is key. To foster a love for something, you need to make it a part of everyday life. To do this, you need to spark a young girl's interest in STEM activities. So what better time of year to consider some great STEM gifts? To assist you, I did a little research and hope to provide you with some cool gift ideas for girls. Yellowscope has STEM kits for different age groups and is a company formed by two moms who are scientists that met volunteering at their daughter's school. Their kits are reasonably priced and focus on STEM learning activities. And because they're moms of daughters, you know they're taking what interests girls into consideration and applied it to their products. Learning Resource makes awesome early learning STEM toys. Their motto, turn, I think I can, into I know I can. I especially like their STEM toy Botley, the coding robot geared to ages five and up. Botley is completely screen-free coding, which means no phone or tablet is used. Botley's not only cute and adorable, but teaches the basics of coding through active play. Botley is perfect for promoting critical thinking and problem-solving skills. 
Little Bits is a New York-based education startup that invented the electronic building block. Little Bits are electronic modules that snap together with magnets and are color-coded, turning ideas into little inventions. The inventions are limitless, allowing children to use their imagination to create. Even Crayola recognizes the importance of STEM activities and has created Crayola Color Chemistry Lab set for ages seven and up. It includes 16 out-of-the-box experiments and 34 additional activities with easy instructions that parents can do with their children. All these gift ideas can be purchased on Amazon and have affordable gift options. If you're looking for some great gift ideas, email me at mary at pathwayscg.com. You're listening to Women to Watch with Sue Rocco. Talk Radio 1210, WPHD. Welcome back. I'm having a wonderful conversation with Dr. Marcella Adamski, a clinical psychologist who lives in uh, California. And um, your work, Marcella, really has been remarkable. And, and you've done, you know, looking at your bio, you, you've been with a lot of different organizations, um, hospitals, you work with corporations. And, um, of course, in your own private practice with individual survivors of torture, I really want to know what what kind of experiences have you had in your own life that have really prepared you for this kind of work other than um, growing up and and having a a brother with uh, disability? Right. Well, that certainly shaped a lot of my ability to not be afraid of human suffering. I mean, I, I just saw it in my younger brother, you know, and all that he had to go through. I think I, think I also was fortunate to have a, a Catholic school education, which really did talk about compassion and kindness and charity as a major part of uh, what we should be doing with our lives. I mean, we were just going to, you know, have families and go on with careers, but that was in the background. Where it really, I think, got, got uh, inculcated in me was the work of the Marianal Sisters, and I joined them because I liked the way they tried to find a way to help people in need and let and then help the people to help themselves. So the Mary Little Sisters used to have a saying they'd like to work themselves out of a job. They'd <laughs> yes. like they you know, they'd like to help people build their own schools or their own That's right. community centers, um, or their own um hospitals, et cetera. And that was wonderful. So it wasn't just, you know, doling out pity or, you know, uh, you know, stuff to people who were less fortunate. It was mm-hmm. really building them up. And mm-hmm. that was, I think, a wonderful learning for me. And I've, I've always loved that about the Marinol sisters. And then, of course, the other big thing for me was after Marinol, I wound up getting a degree in clinical psychology. And, um, and that gave me, a, I think, a wide understanding of of what our basic needs are and how we all long to be cherished and valued and understood. And when we're not, it, all kinds of bad things can happen to us and we can create problems for ourselves and other people. So um, I think being a clinical psychologist, I really am appreciating the work I get to do helping people find um find their value um, deep within themselves and not have it only be dependent on outside validation, mm-hmm. you know, whether it's the boss, the job, or whatever, right. but, but to look inside. That's right. And, and, and one of the ways that I personally have been looking inside is because of my connection working with these Tibetan people, uh, I've developed a keen interest in, in studying meditation and 
how we can use meditation and mindfulness to be aware of our feelings and our thoughts so that we're noticing them and not letting them run the show, but we're, we're use, we then can decide how to use them wisely. That's right. And, uh, that's been very, very helpful to me. I think that's such a key point. Um, I wanted to, to have you talk about the importance of recognizing um, that we develop patterns um, of response in our early years, and uh-huh. as you stated, that no longer serve us today. Uh-huh. So when you're talking to people, you you know you tell them the first step is gaining insight to recognizing these patterns and then choosing healthier responses. How would Correct. you better define that for our listeners? I think you did a fine job. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. You get your own degree in psychology. That's that's kind of it. And we yeah. do, and we have to have compassion for ourselves because those patterns are not easy to break. No, uh, because they were set in place as a sort of a survival mechanism in our own family dynamics. Right? Mm. If we grew up in a a family where if you opened your mouth, you got yelled at. You learned to be very quiet. Mm. Um, but it doesn't help when you're in the bigger world and you need to learn how to speak. That's right. And speak out and speak to your partner and to your children and to your boss, etc. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, I think some, most people don't want to look back to their childhoods because uh, there's always something there that, you know, made us uncomfortable. But, right. but you know, the, the truth of the matter is looking back and making those connections is what, you know, helps you in the present. Oh, I agree. Yeah. I think I, I think one of the biggest reasons that I've noticed people are afraid to look back because they do really love their parents and they don't want them to be blamed mm-hmm. for something. That's right. And, yep. and uh, often parents will say, are you in therapy? Are you talking about me? You know, <laughs> right. so or talk, on the radio yeah, or on the radio. <laughs> right. And I think what you know, what kids and adults need to learn and parents need to learn is that one of the things um, people can learn in therapy is also to have compassion mm-hmm. for their parents That's and right. what, what were their parents' backgrounds and where did they come from, right? Yes. I mean, and then that gives, a, it opens the field of understanding of of awareness that you that you were treated a certain way because that's how they were treated or they were taught that's to be. right that's right and then that there's that but there's room for growth because we're always changing what that's you know right. we always are do you think that that women are better suited for this kind of work the kind of work that you do for as in therapy as maybe? in therapy yes and and well, yeah. yeah people do tend to pick women therapists more often than men and uh, I think that's because women are taught early on to be very empathic. You know, we're taught to smile back <laughs> and speak up and talk and be friendly. And guys are taught to grin and bear it and not say too much. Mm-hmm. So I think people tend to feel closer yeah. uh, to women therapists. It doesn't mean there aren't there are excellent male therapists out there. That's right. And so I, I hope that people recognize that as well. We're going to take one last break, and when we come back, I want to give you an opportunity to talk a little bit more about the uh, the book project. Oh, thank you. Okay. Stay with us for our Diversity and Education Watch. You're listening to Women to Watch with Sue Rocco. This is the Women to Watch Diversity Watch. Hi, this is Hanadi with your weekly diversity segment here. When my daughter was a little girl, every time she wanted to hug her dad, he would ask her to go hug me first three times before returning back to his arms and hugging him. In his action, my husband was following a prophetic saying that instructed Muslims to prioritize the company of mothers three times before fathers and other relatives. 
it was his way of teaching our precious daughter the sacred status of mother in Islam. Honoring parents is at the heart of being a good Muslim. Being thoughtful and kind to them in actions and words is one way of not just showing gratitude, but also being thankful to God. Honoring parents is the only act of worship that was twinned with believing in God for its importance in faith. Quote, and your Lord has commanded that you worship none but him and that you show kindness to parents. If one or both of them attain old age with you, never say to them as much as, uh, nor reproach them, but always address them with kindly speech, end quote. These two verses from chapter 17 in the Quran forbid the slightest expression of discomfort from any request that parents ask and to be generous in their service and speech to them. It's not uncommon for Muslim families to support emotionally, physically, and financially a dedicated sibling in caring for an aging parent at home. It's one of the most honorable acts of worship one can do and the entire family gets involved. Being so far away from my mom, who lives in Lebanon, makes me feel incomplete here in the U.S. I call her at every occasion and try to be part of her life, despite the distances between us. When she visits me, I feel like I'm in heaven. It's not a surprise to hear that Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, said that heaven lays at the feet of mothers, if she only allows me to kiss them. Connect with me on HanadiSpeaksOut.com. Who is Holly Dowling? Holly is a dynamic keynote speaker and inspirational thought leader. You see what we have the ability to do and the power we have. You hold the power for good. Each and every one of us can do something. Holly has inspired millions around the world, including over 500,000 executives. And her show is listened to in 87 countries. Now we're going to spend 25 minutes on your areas of opportunity. Listen to our internationally acclaimed podcast, A Celebration of You, Holly Dowling, empowering those who can change the world. HollyDowling.com. This is the Women to Watch Education Watch. Hi, it's Colleen Hanich. I'm the president of LaSalle University, and this is your Education Watch. Colleen, it's great to have you. Tell us what the first step is in the college process. So when I think of searching for college, it's really a two-point process. It includes planning and research. And by planning, I mean your prospective student sits down with their parents and starts talking about the kind of school they're looking for. Big, small, close to home, far away, uh, a religiously affiliated or a non-affiliated, a school that is urban, a school that is rural. That conversation has to happen at the beginning, and that leads right into some heavy-duty research. So starting to look at the schools themselves, what they're known for, what their best programs are, are, what their culture is like for students who are looking for you know a lot of sports or not a lot of sports all of that goes on in the early days your student will have been thinking about this for a long time but this is really to get the parents up to speed on starting to think very seriously that college is on the horizon how about planning financially well, that's the tough one. As you know, higher education in this country has become just an unbelievable expense for families. And the sooner you start that planning, the better. We're going to do um, a segment later on, Susan, on affordability. But I will just say at this point, you really need to be thinking about this long before your senior starts focusing on what comes next. Affordability is something that families need to, to consider years earlier so that they is it going to be debt financed? Is college going to be on your savings? Is college grandma and grandpa going to help? What is your plan? You need to have one so that a student doesn't end up at college with um, very little resources and a lot of debt. 
A last minute tip to survive the process? Last minute tips, I'm a planner, so you've got to have a plan. You are going to be a road warrior. When your senior is narrowed it down and looking very seriously at colleges, you're going to be driving and flying and checking it out. Be flexible, be open, go even if it's raining on an open house day, and enjoy every moment. Terrific. Thanks so much. Looking Thank forward you. to next week. Now more of Women to Watch with Sue Rocco. Talk Radio 1210 WPHT. Welcome back. I'm having a wonderful conversation with Marcella Adamski, and um, I really want to kind of finish up the show giving you an opportunity to tell us about this book project that you're working on profiling um, 304 stories of Tibetan elders in exile. What a fascinating topic. Oh, yes, it is fascinating. But I think for to make sense, if I might, I'd like to just say a little bit about how it got started. Because I would it love that. Yes. Come out of nowhere. Okay. Um, uh, about, about 15 years ago, uh, I was uh, in India, in Dharamsala, where the Tibetan government in exile has their, uh, where they're located. His Holiness the Dalai Lama lives there. It's also a huge refugee settlement. And I began interviewing children for a report for the United Nations. And in what we were to find out was what were the conditions inside of Tibet. And these were children who literally just climbed and crawled out of Tibet over the Himalayas. And then that report went to the UN. And, and the Chinese were confronted with some of the abuses going on. In the process of doing that presentation to His Holiness the Dalai Lama, I asked what should, what could be done next to help the people of Tibet. And he said, oh, he said, start interviewing the old people right now before they lose their memories and their stories are lost forever. Mm. And put their stories on the Internet so the world can understand what happened in Tibet and translate them into Chinese, because the Chinese people have no idea of what was going on in Tibet and before China invaded. And so I have spent the last 10 years doing that project. That Dalai Lama is so smart, isn't he? <laughs> he, said, I, I, he actually said all three things in, in, like in, in three sentences. I, and I said, that's a wonderful project. I hope the group that I'm here with, it was a group of attorneys um, who were working in human rights. I said, what, when are we going to do it? And they said, we can't. We only work in law. You're going to have to do it. Oh, my gosh. And yeah. I said, I have no idea how to do an oral history project. So having no idea how to do it, and I, I guess I want to say this to everybody out there who has no idea how they're going to start something that they want to do mm-hmm. and don't know how to do it. Just go ahead and do it. That's just right. Well, there's always a first step, right? Yeah, you have to do it. Well, you the first step it. was I, I took a course uh, at the University of California in how do you, how do, you do oral histories. And, and then I found some Tibetans, and I, and I asked them, where do the largest group of Tibetans live in the world? And they were in refugee settlements in India. Then I found someone who could help me translate, and then I raised a little bit of money, um, a couple thousand dollars, and I took, it's unbelievable that when I think back on how many people went with me, but I took four teams to, to a refugee Tibetan settlement in India, and we interviewed over 60, 70 elderly people on videotape. And how long were you there? So we were there about three weeks. I conducted about two interviews a day. The interviews lasted two to three hours. They were videotaped. Um, and then I made sure every single elderly person got a CD, a DVD of their 
of their of their interview. Oh, so they wow. could watch it, you know, either at the community center or give it to their children. It was their life story. Yes. How wonder- this- I would have thought you would have been there much longer. I can't oh, believe I, Well, no, I went I, I went there 10 times. 10 times. Okay. Oh, yeah. And so- I've been there. Well, at, at 10, that includes also going to Tibetan settlements in in California and in Canada and in New Mexico. But, you know, I've been to 10, at least 10 settlements. Can you tell me quickly about your your takeaway from meeting the Dalai Lama and coming to know him? Uh, How would you describe him? He, uh, he, there, there's something about his presence. It is, it's such, he's so alive. And when he's with you, he's totally with you. I remember I walked in and I said, somebody introduced me to him and, and they said, uh, this is the Dalai Lama, and I looked up and I said, oh, it's you, the Dalai Lama. He said, no. He said, it's you, Marcy. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, so we we had a great laugh. He was extremely um, uh, available and present, had a great sense of humor, and very strong. It was like being with... It was like being with somebody, like a, a grand king, a very holy, grand, wise person. Mm. I was very, very honored. I, I've been with, met him several times now and was able to give him some of the inter, uh, collections of the interviews that are in big volumes now. So to finish that part of the story, because yes. I want people to have access to it yes, if they wish. Yes. Um, we, we finished interviewing all of the people, then we transcribed every single interview, and then we found a way, given today's wonderful technology on Google, uh, under YouTube, we put up every single videotaped interview is online now on our website. Okay, and so it would be if they went to YouTube and typed in... No, they would, t- they would go to, uh, to www.tibetoralhistory.org. Okay. Tibet, T-I-B-E-T, mm-hmm. oralhistory.org. Okay. They can see, they, can, they don't have to watch all 304 interviews that are two or three hours long. They can watch 40 short video clips of interviews. Yeah. They can see photographs of people. Uh, they, can, they can read about farming, about childhood experiences. Wow. Uh, about what happened when their country was invaded, how, the, how they were treated. It, it's an m- incredible um, um, amount of information about a population that probably won't exist um, in another, I don't know, 10, 20 years. The Chinese are so moving into Tibet, they're outnumbering the population that live there. Wow. It's fascinating. And the best stories I find are, are told by by elderly. Yes. You know, so much better than, than reading history in a book. Exactly. Yeah. Marcy, I thank you so much for spending time with us today and and sharing a bit of your story. And we'll be sure to give out that uh, website link uh, so that people can go check out these really, really fascinating and important interviews. Oh, well, thank you very much for having me. And hello to everybody in Philadelphia. (laughs) I will send your good wishes. (laughs) Okay. That's it, everyone, for another week of Women to Watch. Thank you so much to our sponsors and contributors for helping us to bring you the real story behind her title. Here on Talk Radio 1210 WPHT. Have a great week, everyone. This program is a paid commercial announcement and in no way represents the views of WPHT or its management. Ready for a career in behavioral health? Earn your online degree at Herzing University. Choose from health and human services, psychology, or social work programs. Gain the skills to work, coordinate, and manage nonprofits. Secure a bachelor's in psychology to study mental health or advance your social work career through our online Masters of Social Work. 
Let us help you become a social change agent. Your future starts now at Herzing University. Text HEALTH to 85109. That's HEALTH to 85109. Or visit herzing.edu. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.